When you buy into multifamily, essentially what you're doing is purchasing a historically appreciating asset. And with that asset comes so many ways of how we can add value. Welcome to the Immigrant Doctor Podcast, a podcast for financially focused immigrant physicians and other medical professionals looking to learn investing in the U.S. market and achieving financial freedom. Join Avishkar, the Immigrant Doctor, as he talks to high achievers and go-getters who unravel their journeys, hardships, and successes, helping you to get your financial freedom. To learn more, go to theimmigrantdoctor.com. Folks, um, some of my guests may actually have, uh, you know, some mentorship programs, they may have some deals that they're working on, and uh, you might get interested in working with them. But uh, please bear in mind that I haven't done any due diligence on what they are offering. Um, And you should do your own due diligence before you start working with them. Having said that, you know, these are very high quality guests that I'm trying to bring on so that they can provide good value to you. And, you know, they're hardworking individuals and they have uh, integrity when they work, but you should definitely do your own due diligence. Um, I, I haven't done that due diligence on, um, you know, what their programs are, what their deals are. Um, so please do your due diligence. Um, I don't want to be held liable for anything that they are offering and you join that program or that deal with them uh, because you heard it on my podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Immigrant Doctor Podcast. So I want to welcome Andrea Garcia. She is actually a real badass at uh, real estate. Um, You know, she's worked in commercial real estate investment for the last six years and is deeply involved in acquisition, development, refinance, sales and operations. Over 30,000, is that correct? 30,000 multifamily, Section 8, low-income housing and market rate units in 20-plus states, exceeding $1.5 billion of assets under management. That's a mouthful and a handful of money. But um, so I'm very fortunate that she's a part of my team. And, uh, you know, she's the lead underwriter for our for my team. The reason why I wanted to do this podcast was to kind of understand what's going on in the market and how the market is changing. And as a savvy investor, I believe that, you know, you invest in every market cycle um, that we go through. But it's important to change your strategy based on the market cycle, based on what you're anticipating. And that's why I wanted to do this episode to discuss these changes that we're seeing in the last few months that have occurred. And of course, talk about this uh, Houston portfolio that went south or is going south uh, that everybody's talking about. It's all over the news. And so we're going to dive into this episode, have some fun, have some discussions. More important than that would be actually what we've learned from this. So please welcome Andrea Garcia. And uh, Andrea, how are you doing today? I'm doing amazingly. Thanks for having me on your podcast, Vishkar. It's been an honor to be able to work with you and also to just be able to bring more knowledge to people, just to educate about the things that I never learned in the beginning, because I started with this journey about six years ago. And over the years, um, in working in a big multifamily investment firm for affordable housing, you pick up little things here and there. Uh, one thing at a time is how you have to learn it. And uh, where we're at right now with the real estate market, it's it's complex. <laughs> so I'm excited to <laughs> go through the nuances with you and, you know, not necessarily uh, judge other people's decisions, but figure, figure out a way in which we can explain to our investors, hey, this is how we're repositioning ourselves in this market, how we're going to continue to hedge, hedge against this risk uh, through any market correction through multifamily real estate. 
Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's not about putting somebody down. I think people make uh, the best decisions at any particular time based on the information that they have. And uh, I, th- I don't know, of course, the, the finer details of what happened, but I think let's just start with um, sort of what we've seen over the last few months in terms of the deal flow, in terms of how the market has changed, how the economy has changed. Hmm. <laughs> What's interesting is that I'm seeing so many changes happening right now in the real estate market, but also we just have to look at the bigger picture macroeconomically. Right now what the Fed has essentially done is that we're at a we're at a standpoint. Um, so we we're having debt increase more and more, and then because of that debt increase in the market, the government's printing more money. Interest rates are actually going up. Also, it's devaluing properties. But um, you know, real estate prices have gone up through uh, single family real estate. But multifamily, it's interesting because I think they did a study uh, not so long ago. It was about last quarter where Moody Analytics basically published that real estate prices have drastically gone down in the first quarter of 2023 and how we have to essentially understand how that affects us as real estate investors. You know, what this is one of the largest commercial real estate markets in the world, United States essentially, and right now what the brokerages are reporting as well is that it's slow. <laughs> so needless to say the less, it's it's slow with ask traditional. Us how we know, ask us how we know it's slow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's slow. I mean, a lot of people are afraid right now. They're afraid to invest because they've seen some bad news about, you know, like you mentioned, the Houston uh, portfolio investors. Um, the, a lot of people have been laid off their jobs. More people are working from home. There's so many um, factors economically and demographically that have affected us as a whole in terms of how we are investing in real estate, such as spaces like offices. Right now, the office space, the investment sector is low on that part. And multifamily, considering the prices have gone down, but also sales have gone down since the last quarter of last year. I think it was since Q1 of 2022, uh, the actual sales, I think, dropped by about $40 So that was a 74% decrease up to this year compared to last year. So right now what's happening, sales have dropped across the U.S. through multifamily in in terms of traditional sales. So the way that a lot of people are looking at this market is to see how can we creatively acquire these assets? How can we fill that demand of possibly tired landlords? these aged, distressed assets that we could be able to acquire and do value add on these properties. So there's so many ways and variables that factor into what's happening right now. Yeah. And, you know, I was on a call uh, recently and uh, this was this interesting, there was this interesting conversation that we were having about uh, what are the major factors that are affecting the current state of the market, right? It's a different kind of a situation compared to the last recession that we were in. And I don't know if you're technically still in a recession yet or not. But I think last time there wasn't a lot of liquidity in the market. And by liquidity, I mean like people holding on on to cash. At this point in time, I think there's a lot of liquidity, but the investors are scared to put money into anything. Um, The lending certainly seems to be drying up. 
also uh, the lenders have become stringent and i would you know love to discuss that with you about what's going on uh, in, in that aspect or that part of the the whole market um, but but that's kind of uh, uh, you know add to that the fact that overall there is still a national housing shortage right so there is still a demand for housing but then uh, but then we are facing faced with this inflation and then we are faced with a lot of liquidity so there's a lot of push and pull in the market and i think it creates a sense of a confusion uh, of whatever's going on in the market that's true i mean essentially what has happened is that right now we have an acute shortage of housing so throughout the country right now interest rates have increased You've seen that home prices have also increased as a result of that. So there's actually more demand for affordability and for apartment buildings, which is interesting. I mean, if you look at the stats right now, vacancy has pretty much stayed at about 5% or less nationwide through these apartment buildings compared to other sectors. So I still feel confident investing in multifamily just because of that one fact is just how much occupancy and the demand for multifamily real estate, especially right now, since the average person and the average median income does not really align with a down payment for a house. It doesn't really make sense for people to buy a single family in some markets for themselves, so they choose to rent. Personally, I have rented. I love renting, but also um, I just <laughs> I'm one of those people that don't want to take care of my property. I'd rather have someone else take care of it for me. <laughs> So, yeah, you know, that's important because, yeah. you know, uh, I think the mindset also with the changing generation is changing uh, of the the whole the whole idea of home ownership. And a lot of people just want to live, you know, I want to have a space, safe space to live in sure. and comfortable space to live in, but not necessarily have to, you know, extensively take care of it, uh, which is one of the advantages that apartments offer. Yes, absolutely. There's so many advantages to apartment building investments and just living in an apartment building. But I understand, you know, when my parents first came to this country, I mean, I'm a first born generation American. My parents both came from other countries. Their dream was to buy a house. That's the American dream. Understandably so. That was an amazing dream back in like the 70s or the 80s. Right now, what we're looking at is that if you want to buy a a typical single family home in the United States, essentially for the average American, you do have to buy it with someone else. Or you're seeing a lot of investors that are starting to invest in these properties, maybe find creative ways on how they can invest in it through either arbitrage, through short-term rentals, um, long-term investments, but it really depends on what their exit strategy is. And I love multifamily just because the exit strategy of how we are able to get into a property and get out is the way that we focus on. We want to make sure that investors can put money into the deals and then get it back and then some. You know, it, there's so many benefits to multifamily. There's appreciation, there's cash flow, the tax benefits, and essentially depreciation too. And also, yeah. hey, you know, you can write it out uh, many expenses off your K-1. You know, there's there's so many benefits to it, but also it's understanding. I'm not trying to sell multifamily real estate. I'm trying to <laughs> let people understand that even in a recession, these are pretty recession resistant assets. Yeah, that's true. And I think um, um, it's important to understand the fact that no matter what asset you look at, Having this deep understanding of that asset class is very, very important. Uh, 
And a lot of local factors also come into play, right? Like it's not just that multifamily is recession resistant, so blindly everybody should follow multifamily. But say somebody is investing in an office space, right? If the location is right and you know the local factors that are going to play into this, that might be a great investment too. Yeah. It just depends on the exit strategy and also right now what the lending market looks like. So if Yeah, let's talk about the lending market. <laughs> what, is, what does the lending market look like? <laughs> What's amazing about what we've been going through as investors is that we're we're kind of shopping around and starting to develop stronger relationships with lenders and even mortgage brokers and seeing that there are loans, there's money out there, but the way that lenders are underwriting is also more conservatively. We're not going to have a situation where <laughs> back in 2008, essentially, they could give a house to anybody without running a background check or credit check, whatever's happening. So especially if you're a syndicator in multifamily, the lender will look at us under a microscope. We want to make sure that our sponsor that's going to sponsor us on the deal, that they're they're actually worth the loan amount, the full loan amount, plus to have reserves, months of reserves in the bank account. And also they look at us under a microscope to see if we pass a background check as your general partner team, that we are able to deliver on what we say we're going to deliver, that we have an effective business plan, that we're able to have a good management team that can manage the assets on site. And also how we've presented the pro forma. Are we conservatively underwriting? Are we kind of underwriting like a brokerage who wants to underwrite aggressively? So <laughs> lenders are used to scoping out the BS, so to stay. <laughs> so right now what's happening is that interest rates, of course, they're still pretty high. You know, right now there's five-year hybrids, seven-year hybrids. There's adjustable rates. There's even bridge equity still out there, but I don't think a lot of people are assuming bridge equity at the moment unless they're really desperate for cash, you know? So there's... Right, right, right. Because it comes at a high price, essentially. You're bridging the, the gap between uh, a non-stabilized asset to make sure, and you put bridge debt on that in order to stay, you know, give it some time to stabilize, but it has to be stabilized by within one to two years. It's a short-term exit strategy, but that's what's happened right now with a lot of these loans that have that were engaged in 2021 to 2022 is that people have put bridge debt on these properties. The cash flow is going to start diminishing tremendously in the next coming years. So loans are coming due. And because of that, yeah. interest rates keep hiking. Lenders keep um, also conservatively underwriting and not giving out as many loans as they were before. So people are holding on to money until they see that they can trust the people they're investing with. Yeah, um, you know, I know this term conservative underwriting is just thrown around. Like I don't I have never heard anybody say hey, we we aggressively underwrite. <laughs> Everybody conservatively underwrites. And I think we'll get into this because I want to make sure that uh, you know, we're able to kind of convey as to what it means and what Changes we've done, but I I wanna I wanna first talk about this Arbor deal um, that went south, um, and I don't of course you know this there's a caveat to this that we don't have all the information about it we just know what we've read on, on in the news essentially, but I wanna try and break it down uh, and get your perspective on this as to what you saw happening there, uh, basically 
why do you think it went south? And then, you know, we can just sort of talk more about, uh, about it. I think when any multifamily deal goes south, it's kind of like seeing a shark in San Diego waters. It's very rare, <laughs> like a shark attack. <laughs> so it's basically an unexpected shark attack that happens once you see a multifamily foreclosure, especially with what happened with the Houston portfolio deal. Those were low income housing properties, low income housing. That's been my bread and butter for years. And it's really hard to be able to not underwrite correctly for those properties because it's so regulated by the government. Lenders want to make sure that the rent schedules, that the cash flow is actually paying for the debt service. So the fact that these properties stopped, like the owners actually stopped making mortgage payments and went into foreclosure, I think it was like $229 million worth of assets, 3,200 units. And I and it was like back in March that they started foreclosing on these properties. Right. That, that's pretty shocking. That's why it keeps being talked about by so many investors, because essentially what I heard happen with these deals is that they were giving out pretty heavy like prefs. So they're giving out preferred returns, which essentially, if anybody understands what preferred return is, is that you go into an equity investment structure with um, as a limited partner, you're going to invest in a deal with a general partner and give up some investment, right? So that limited partner that they were, those limited partners that they were investing with were promised a preferred return, maybe 8%, 7%. And the, on top of the cash flow that was being generated, that preferred return first to the investors was being over leveraged, like they could not make those promises happen. Plus, they put bridge debt on those properties. So um, it's like the perfect storm. You know, when you have too much bridge, bridge debt, plus you're giving out preferred returns, because of course, you want to make good promises <laughs> to your investors to them. But, you know, we, we work with our SEC attorney to make sure we don't over promise. And because we want we, right. we want to make sure that we're over delivering and under promising. Right. <laughs> so well, realistic. Uh, we we keep trying yes. to keep it realistic, but but I think I think um, you're right. It was it was like a perfect storm, right? There's so many variables that were there um, that could have been uh, mitigated. But having said that, you know the pref returns is nothing new to the industry, right? Pref no. returns have been offered in the past. Um, you know, my opinion is I think it was more of the the debt that was on the variable debt. From what I understand, actually they saw what a five basis point increase in debt in their debt uh, debt service. Um, and for those you know who don't understand the basis points is basically say your debt was at three percent and a five basis point in, increase would probably end up will 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 make your debt go up to eight percent. So. I don't think anybody underwrites for, for a five basis point increase in their debt service. Even if they were underwriting conservatively, uh, I don't think people will do that. No, I mean, I was on a call with a mortgage broker yesterday and essentially he said, hey, you know, if you want to be conservative, put in a 2% or 2.5% exit strategy on the basis points. So, you know, that is something that I guess they didn't underwrite for, or maybe they were trying to, uh, what is it, pay Nancy to give to Paul? I'm not sure <laughs> what the saying is, but <laughs> I heard that also that when they purchased these properties, they were already 
they couldn't make the payments for like three other ones. So they ended up buying more, a thousand more units. Right. So I, right, there's right, just right. so much that's unknown until we see the financials until, until we see what's happening because there's going to be lawsuits right. involved. It's not just foreclosures, but Did, the l- limited partners can sue for what happened there too. Right. right. No, that's true. I think, I think, uh, there's a lot to be learned from this entire situation. But did I say five basis basis points? I meant actually 500 basis points. Uh, yeah. I apologize for that. <laughs> That's confusion. the average. It was 500. <laughs> I know what you meant. So. <laughs> the increase. <laughs> Yeah, so, so, um, but I think, again, I just want to make sure that people understand this is what we have read and what we've heard from others. I don't know what the financials were for that, that particular deal. I don't know what was going on in their, in their, you know, business to kind of give an accurate assessment of, of uh, whatever happened. But having said that, you know, from whatever little we know, what are we doing in our structuring? Because we've had this conversation, and I think we had this conversation some time ago before, when this, this uh, article came out and uh, we came to know about this. Because uh, this has been there for a while, and I'm, you know, people recently started sending me this Wall Street Journal article again and again. I think it was just because uh, now suddenly it's in the media that people are becoming more fearful of this. And I think it becomes very challenging in this situation uh, not only for us as operators, as you know, syndicators, but also for investors, because it creates a sense of fear and a sense of confusion. Uh, and I, I just want to make sure that we can communicate to them, like, what are we doing differently? Uh, and, and what exactly is conservative underwriting? We are talking about conservative underwriting. What are we doing differently now, Andrea, in our underwriting? I think how we're positioning ourselves for strong risk-adjusted acquisitions now like you said before, it's the conservative underwriting, but it's understanding that we need to be able to raise capital, not only for acquiring the deal, but also for the reserves too. So the reserves as well, we're not searching for bridge equity (laughs) to place on these properties because we're purchasing stabilized assets essentially. And when we say stabilized, usually that's a property that's over... 90, 95% occupancy. So we don't want to buy an asset that's essentially in a terrible market where we're not going to get our cash flow. Um, so first th- first off is that we're buying it for cash flow. We want to make sure that it's cash flowing from day one. And also we're, our acquisition strategy is what differentiates us as well because we are able to pull lists from title companies, from different resources, brokers, we're able to have our boots in the ground, be able to find creative financing strategies with these tired landlords or with other people that have these assets under them and see if they're willing to do, let's say, seller financing or we assume the note on the property. So we don't want to be over leveraged in how we're acquiring these assets. And right now, that's the name of the game because a lot of people are scared of purchasing traditionally financed assets and multifamily at the moment because of the high interest rates, because they don't know if their money is going to stay stable in the market. So yeah, you can put your money elsewhere if you want, but whenever you, some other real estate, or let's say some other stock market promises you 18%, 20% return, that's not guaranteed. What I love about multifamily and how we're able to acquire and identify these assets, refinance them, manage them, operate them, and essentially 
you know, exit out of them within five to seven years is that we are able to understand that how we can get out of this investment so that we're able to protect our investors and we're not over leveraging ourselves. that we're not just that we don't have too little of a debt service coverage ratio (laughs) to be able to acquire the financing. Yeah, I want to talk about over leveraging because I think uh, that's a very important thing to understand. And there's no clear cut definition of over leveraging, right? So uh, somebody may say that, well, well, getting going above 60% is over leveraging. Somebody may say, well, going above 80% is over leveraging. I think uh, it's uh, one thing about commercial real estate is also the fact that uh, the lender sort of sets the limits on what's the maximum amount that you can actually leverage on a, on, a, on an asset. I think a few years ago it was as high as 80%, 90%, but I don't think at this point in time, even the lenders are giving more than 70%, like 70s in the 70s, you know, uh, as far as the, the, debt, sir, the, the debt portion of, of the, the whole deal goes. But we would ideally want to have um, assets probably leverage even lower than that if we can. Now, the important part of uh, the important thing about this is the fact that that might actually decrease some of the returns that the investors get. But I think what it ends up doing is it helps create more uh, more security or or a bigger safety net. Um, God forbid something happens. Folks, I just wanted to remind you, if you haven't done that already, head on over to www.theimmigrantdoctor.com. Uh, I have created a free video resource for you guys. It's a small course that I've created on investing in real estate. It's not very extensive, but it just gives you a flavor of what investing in real estate looks like um, so that you can get started, get more comfortable with the terms around real estate and get more comfortable with some of the facets of real estate. So go to www.theimmigrantdoctor.com to download this free resource. You know, what's amazing about buying in multifamily is that not you're you're protected on so many levels just by purchasing that asset. I mean, the fact that you invested your money as an LP, yes, you're going to get a K1 statement at the end of the year. You can be able to do any kind of uh, tax deductions if you associate that as a business. Plus, you can be able to 1031 it into something else. There's a way for us to understand that when you buy into multifamily, essentially what you're doing is purchasing a historically appreciating asset. And with that asset comes so many ways of how we can add value. So our focus is primarily purchasing value add properties and seeing how we can be able to acquire, refinance, operate, refinance and exit out of this without, you know, <laughs> like I said, over leveraging, adding too much bridge debt, well, I, not I, having I enough cash talk flow. About value add. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I want to talk about value add over here because I think that's one of the important things that we're also looking at in terms of uh, how we're buying assets. I don't when we even though we're buying stabilized assets, we want to buy assets where there is an opportunity to increase the income, right? Because mm-hmm. um, in these assets, the the valuation of the asset is based on the income that it generates, and if we are able to if we are able to find assets that have that delta or that differential in the income that that essentially puts that investment in our control, right? We can change those levers around to change the valuation of the asset based on increasing or improving the income. Now, of course, can we, will we definitely be able to improve the, improve the income? I don't know. Nobody knows. I don't think anybody knows, but uh, the way we underwrite uh, and the way we look at assets, the, with the experience that we have, with the experienced partners that we have, the, you know, the local people that we have, um, 
I think it gives us a lot of eyes uh, looking at any particular deal that we're looking at and looking at it from different angles, different lenses to see whether it's going to be a viable deal or not. That's true. I mean, whenever we say value add, that essentially means is how many, how much we can improve the lives of the tenants there. That's the way I see value add. How am I improving the life of a tenant who's living in my building and how that's going to be able to benefit our investors as well? You know, so whenever I'm thinking about something to add value, I'm thinking about maybe adding in extra laundry machines, maybe improving landscaping, security measures. We can charge pet fees. There's so many fees we can add, but we have to do that progressively. You understand? Like we don't want to freak out tenants in order for them to move out in the first year. And then that unit is vacant for who knows how long. But essentially what we don't want to do is be essentially slumlords. We don't want to give a unit to a tenant that is not exactly up to market. We're charging market rents and we're dry, we're price gouging. We don't want to price gouge our tenants out of the unit that they've been in for a while. We want to make sure that we improve the lives of them while we're doing that progressively. We're underwriting for year over year increases in rent, year over year increases in fees as well that we can be able to charge. There's there's so many and, different and fees. on top of that, yeah, and, and on top of that, we want to ensure that we're cash flowing. So sure, the cash flow might be a little lower when we're kind of still doing these changes, but over time it's going to improve. And so that's that's very important to me. Is like the assets should be cash flowing right 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 when we get in. And we've had so many conversations about that, and you know I've been very clear about about it in our in you know our internal discussions as a team that we need to have, you know, cash flow is our priority. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not, I'm not buying a deal unless it has produces cash flow from day one. Because what I don't want to do, I'm not in a position, neither am I, I don't want to put my investors in a position where we have a, too much equity in the deal where we, we can't be able to refinance out because the value of the asset does not meet to appraisal standards. So, right. <laughs> We want to make sure that it can pass appraisal standards. We can be able to essentially refinance down the line and do cash out refinances one day soon, you know, when we're out of this market, <laughs> but be able to progressively improve the quality of this, let's say B class, C class asset and convert it to A class. And the only way we can really do that is by making sure we have enough reserves with this right. property and through the reserves, we're also able to cash flow as long as we can see that the the income can exceed the expenses. Right. And, you know, um, having these uh, safeguards or safety nets that we are putting in place, of course, the returns may be a little lower. Not always, though. Not always, though. It depends on, on the deal, of course. But they may be a little lower, but at the same time, I think it's, uh, it's, it's more prudent, it's smarter in this environment, in this economy where everything's uncertain and, uh, you know, things are changing. The other thing that we're doing is we're not looking at short-term debt like we talked about. We're looking at long-term debt. I would rather have the longest term possible at this point in time, and this is just the way I am. I am very risk-averse. I don't want to have that stress of the interest rate going up uh, when, uh, an amortize, you know, when an arm sort of expires in yeah. three years, five years, whatever. So I want to have the longest term possible, uh, and that gives us enough runway to get 
to get our assets to wherever, whatever valuation we need to get them to. Right. And we have to for sure underwrite the fact that we do have that long-term debt. Let's say it's a 30-year amortized loan, but we want to make sure that if there's any prepayment penalties on that loan, we're able to meet that, let's say five years, seven years down the line when we refinance. So it's making sure that we have those safeguards in place. So we're not putting a long-term loan on this property that we can't meet with. Service. Right. Yep, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's all about padding in the extra contingencies. God forbid something happens and we need to have reserves for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, say units are vacant, we need to have reserves for that. Uh, we need to cover our debt cover, you know, debt service. Of course, we need to have reserves for um, the changes that we're making to the, the to the assets. Having all of these, padding all of these in, making sure that uh, we are underwriting for maybe it's you know God forbid there's a vacant you know vacancy goes up underwriting for what's the vacancy that the asset can withstand. I think all of these uh, constitute conservative underwriting. Yeah. So that that is what we're looking at, and I'm I'm so glad that you know we've been able to look at that, and we're all on the same page with respect to with respect to underwriting them the right way. So what, what should investors do right now, Andrea? What, uh, what are you recommending? Should they just sit on the sidelines or should they be actively looking and investing into deals? Actively invest in multifamily. Whatever you do, if it's the last thing you do with your life, <laughs> actively invest <laughs> in multifamily. It's I honestly- think Warren Buffett rightly said, right? Um, that if there is, uh, <laughs> be greedy when, when everyone's fearful and be fearful when, when everyone's greedy. Uh-huh. I think at this point in time, the sentiment of the market has changed to everybody being fearful. I know. And I think this is the right time <laughs> for a smart investor to be greedy. <laughs> What's funny is like you're saying this, it reminds me of a friend who wanted me to invest in Bitcoin back when it was like $10,000 per Bitcoin. He's like, whatever you do, take out from your credit cards, take out money from here, just invest it in Bitcoin because it's going to go up. Yes, it went up really quickly during the pandemic and then it went right back down and and it's amazing how these bubbles that have occurred through either crypto or through um the stock market you know there's different variations that go with it but i've seen that multifamily is the best way to go for me because it's been able to produce long-term cash flow distributions every quarter or every six months, you know, so I'm able to see a return on my investment just because I know what I'm getting myself into. And I want to be able to share that knowledge with so many other people. Like, hey, this is how we're presenting the deal to you. If you have any questions, come to us, ask us why we think this is a good avenue to underwrite for or what is underwriting, (laughs) you know, a lot of people don't even know what that word means, you know, what essentially underwriting is, is that you're explaining if it's a good deal or not. You're making a calculated assumption based on past performance or based on the financials that are presented to you at the moment to see if it's a good investment. And essentially, that's what we do as investors. We're not going to hoard our money and save it under the couch, unlike some of our ancestors (laughs) have. (laughs) We want to make sure that the money is put to work for us and that we're investing it with a team that either has a track record or they have some kind of experience and knowledge in this. And I mean, that's what I have. And I know that our team has that as well, that we're, we're, we've been investing for a while and we want to make sure that we are compliant with SEC guidelines. We're compliant with the IRS, with anybody so that we can show that that this is a stable asset and that we can be able to produce returns for our investors 
based on the underwriting. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, I agree with you, but I think uh, it's, uh, it's so important to have that mindset of what Warren Buffett says. You know, it, it becomes, it's very easy to become fearful just because of the uncertainty that exists. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of as easy for me to say, well, you know, this is the best time to get into it because, uh, you know, you and I have some understanding of this this real estate market, and we understand that what's going to happen, or what we can anticipate what will happen. I can I don't know for sure what's going to happen, but we can at least anticipate, and it gives us some sense of certainty. But for somebody who doesn't understand um, the nuances, like you know, an article coming out about uh, a deal that went south, it just puts fear in people's minds. Right. And I think at this time, it's yeah. all the more important to understand that. There's going to be fear around everywhere, right? So getting that knowledge, getting that understanding, and understanding your, who you're going to be working with, where you're going to park your money, is going to be so important and so critical because that is what's going to give you the edge above others. Right. That's, what's, that's when the wealth is going to shift hands. Yeah. And I've had numerous calls with people, um, you know, other very savvy investors, um, even yesterday we were on a call and um, essentially what I was told was that that's what smart money is doing. So smart money is like, you know, multi, uh, these uh, family offices, the big money. That's what they're doing. They're looking to make these big moves where uh, they're going to park this excess money that they have into distressed assets that are going to come on the market now because of the economic changes that have occurred. So when everybody is going to fear and they're going to hold tight onto their money, that's when these smart, you know, the smart money will come in and take over these distressed assets. And in the next five to seven years, eight years, who knows what's going to happen, but at least the expectation is that people who make the move now will be the people who would really be making the riches. I feel you are 100% right. On that statement, just because if you look at any of the last economic downturns that have occurred, especially in 2008, when they were giving classes to investors, this is how you can make money in this economic market. You know, I know we're struggling. That's sorry to say it, but that's what's happening now. Right now, what people are doing, they're scared. The prices are going lower. This is the time to buy. <laughs> this is the time to be creative. This is the time to understand that people need a place to live. They're looking for apartment buildings to live in. They're, they need to be able to um, invest their money in something that can be able to produce long-term wealth. And the way to do that is through real estate. So I was happy that when I started my investing journey was back in 2008 when I was like, a teen. <laughs> I went to Robert Kiyosaki, Donald Trump seminars. You know, there was all these seminars that were happening, but it, you noticed the fear in people's eyes when that economic downturn happened and people lost everything and they had to start from scratch. And the way they did that was through real estate. So that's the way I'm just positioning myself and I'm hoping to position other people to educate them more about financial independence, financial freedom how they can be able to understand whether what's a good investment, what is not a good investment. So I'm just happy to be part of this and, and to just be here. <laughs> yeah, I think um, this is the right time to get ready, get your you know, powder dry <laughs> for what's going to come. That's, uh, that's the, the name of the game right now. So um, this has been a very fun conversation. Thank you so much for joining me for this. I think uh, 
uh, I think it does put some light on what's going on, and I think it, uh, it rests assured uh, people who have the capital right now should be ready to put it into good deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, make sure that you're looking at vetting the people that you're working with, that you're parking your money with. Uh, understand some of the nuances. Please ask questions to people because you need to be very sure of what uh, you're getting into. If somebody is not willing to answer those questions about their deal, please, I would recommend going away or looking for somebody else to park your money with who is willing to explain everything to you because you need to be working with people who are very transparent about uh, what they're doing. Uh, but keeping your money in the bank, for sure, it's going to depreciate in value. That is that is a given. That is There's no speculation there. That is going to happen for sure. So you need, your, you need to park your money uh, somewhere where it's going to appreciate over time. Exactly. That's the name of the game, making sure that we do better for our next generations. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, Andrea. This was a fun conversation and all. Thank you so much, guys, for joining us. And uh, we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Immigrant Doctor Podcast. If you would like to learn more, head to www.theimmigrantdoctor.com. See you again soon on another episode and another amazing journey.